the idea is that you are the collection of all of your interests. Attention is the prioritization of those interests. And that prioritization work, that act, is what makes the self have some kind of power. It's oh. a very popular view of philosophy to see consciousness as the thing and self as non-existence and an illusion. And what I'm doing is I'm saying the self is the thing, <laughs> and then consciousness is just the way that the self is related to its world. I think that one of the reasons that people will be uncomfortable with it who have been in consciousness research for a long time is just because it's become so popular to think about consciousness as a thing. So popular that people say things like... This is Brain Inspired. This is Brain Inspired. Hey everyone, I'm Paul. William James, the super influential psychologist and philosopher, famously in 1890 wrote... Everyone knows what attention is. That turned out not to be true. Uh, instead, like other cognitive functions we give names to, like memory or consciousness, the more that we study attention, the more subdivided the concept becomes, leading to a taxonomy to describe the varieties of what we collectively call attention, like top-down versus bottom-up attention, feature-based versus spatial attention, overt versus covert attention, and so on. And some people even argue that the word attention isn't even useful anymore, and we should abandon it. Carolyn Dicey Jennings is a philosopher and a cognitive scientist at the University of California, Merced. And in her book, The Attending Mind, she lays out an attempt to unify the concept of attention. Carolyn defines attention roughly as the prioritization of some stuff over other stuff, based on our collective interests. Uh, and one of her main claims is that attention is evidence of a real emergent self or subject that can't be reduced to microscopic brain activity. She does connect attention to more macroscopic brain activity, suggesting that slow, longer-range oscillations in our brains can alter or entrain um, the more local neural activity. And this is a candidate for mental causation. So we unpack that more in our discussion and how Carolyn situates uh, attention among other cognitive functions like consciousness, action, and perception. I link to uh, her book and some other relevant articles, and you can learn more about Carolyn uh, in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 153. On the website, you can also sign up to support Brain Inspired via Patreon for various bells and whistles, like full episodes and uh, joining our Discord community. Thanks as always to my Patreon supporters, and thank you for listening or watching. All right, here's Carolyn. Carolyn, the book is The Attending Mind. And uh, right before yeah. we were talking here, I was frantically looking it up because, of course, it has a subtitle, but it has no subtitle. Why no subtitle? Yeah, no subtitle. <laughs> uh, I like things to be short and sweet, I guess. They didn't ask you for it. all books, all science books or philosophy books have mm. subtitles, right? This is important, hard hitting mm. uh, interview <laughs> questions. <here. laughs> yeah, I guess they do often have long subtitles. I'm really inspired by philosophers like Susan Wolf, who tried to connect more with the public or Fredretsky, who tried to be really clear with their writing. And that's a goal of mine. And I feel sometimes like the really long <laughs> subtitles are um, at odds with that. Hmm. So. so Okay. Well, 
so the, the title is very short. And by the way, I like that it has no subtitle, mm. by the way. It's not a criticism. Mm. Okay. But the, yeah, the book and the, and the book is not uh, long either, but it, it, it is dense mm. and thick and has uh, lots of, yeah. goes down lots of paths, lots of details and stuff. Um, maybe I'll just start yeah. off with a, <laughs> a very easy quote here from the book, and then we can unpack it, right? <laughs> consciousness, <laughs> is, <laughs> consciousness is the interface between a subject and its world. Action is the subject's contribution to that interface, and attention is but one way to get there. So we have a lot to unpack here, perhaps. Mm. Um, so <laughs> like I, I was saying, the, the book covers like a lot of ground in philosophy and neuroscience and psychology. Um, and uh, there's no way that we're going to get to all the topics discussed in the book. And this this book was two years old now, so it's probably old yeah. hat for you. And it was based on uh, over a decade of your previous works and thinking. Yeah. Maybe we can start with... Um, you know, we're going to have to unpack uh, the ideas in the book, many of them. But uh, maybe what I want to start with is just asking you what you feel most sure about um, in your work. And I don't know how your mind has has developed and and changed um, since publishing this work um, in terms of of the ideas that that we'll get to. But what do you feel most sure about in the book? I feel the most sure about the existence of the self which Ooh. is, I would say, the strongest claim of the book as well. So that, um, yeah, that's probably where I, that there is something responsible for attention uh, that it could be seen as a one possible solution to the problem of free will, for example, uh -oh. the problem of agency. I feel confident about that. Um and in keeping with that, I feel pretty confident about the rejection of a reductionist perspective of the universe, um, that all causation occurs at one level, that all science occurs at one level, and should be that we should think of science as ultimately coming back to one level, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. um, I feel confident about that that it's that it's actually really useful to to think in terms of multiple levels and that agency is one of the cases where you can really see that so that's where i feel confident i would say places where a part of the book that i feel less confident about and i haven't continued to work on would be the stuff about legal theory all mm. the way at the end which kind of makes sense because it sort of starts with the stuff that i'm the most excited about in the book and kind of ends with the stuff that i feel the least confident about but it's you know sort of going out into a new direction that I, I may continue later mm -hmm. but there are also things that I just didn't complete in the book and so in a way I feel less confident about those things too but I'm hoping to complete them eventually and those are things like what is where is the boundary between self and world how do you how would you quantify mm -hmm. that how would you and, and in a way, without knowing where that boundary is, you don't really know exactly what the self is. So knowing the limits of the self, um, I'm that I don't feel fully confident about, that there is one I feel confident about, but not where exactly it ends. And then also connected with that, um, this, this, the details of the view on consciousness, 
I'm still working out. So that's something that I'm actually working on this, this year is writing up my view of consciousness, which I didn't okay. complete in the book. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You, um, I think you even mentioned in the book that this, that it was at the time sort of an incomplete, uh, beginning yeah. of your yeah. conception. Um, so you see consciousness as the interface between the subject or self and the world. Maybe, I guess we should back up and talk about your conception of the self then. Um, yeah. And you, you use terms like agency just now. So I have, and um, and I want to ask also about, well, let's start with the conception of the self that, um, that you uh, lay out in the book. And you say that attention uh, or top-down attention um, yeah. is evidence for an emergent self. Mm-hmm. And of course, I want to yeah. get into the neuroscience of it, of it all as well. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe you could hash out just a little bit more what you mean by the self, if you're so confident about it. <laughs> <laughs> you're taking me to task. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I see the self as a collection of interests. I see an interest as a tendency to seek out and respond to stimuli in a certain way. This is a kind of like psychological definition. Mm-hmm. So it's like a psychology directed definition. Um, and then I see the act of attention, as you said, as foundation of the self. So when that collection of interests, so saying that the self is a collection of interests in philosophy, we have this idea that, that things, that existence is, is very closely connected with causation. So if you are something that exists, you ought to have some sort of causal power. Okay. Everything in philosophy is controversial. So of course that yep. too <laughs> is yep. some controversy, but most people feel comfortable with that, that if something exists, then it has some form of causal power. So when I say that the self is a collection of interests, if it's going to be something that you can mark out as existing in the world, then you want that collection of interests to have some sort of causal power to do something not just be descriptive. Like, yes, you can draw a circle around any number of things, but if it's going to really be something we're going to talk about and do science about, it should should do something beyond just that description. So what that is, I think, is attention. So that collection of interests has causal power over its individual interests. So you could think of this um, instead of in terms of causal power, you could think of it in terms of constraints. So one of the things I do in the book is I, I talk about the difference between um, what's what one philosopher calls macretic determination and causal power. I still think that the self has causal power, but you might think of that relationship of the self over its interests as just in terms of constraint. So it's basically constraining which interests get to make it up. And that happens in attention. So attention is like the prioritization of those interests. Your, pri- your interest in um, podcasts, your interest in a hot cup of tea, that your attention is basically ranking those things. And so right now you may have a hot cup of tea in front of you and you have my voice as well. And your attention has both of those things available to it. And it's kind of prioritizing one over the other. And it may shift those priorities over time. But the idea is that you are the collection of all of your interests Attention is a prioritization of those interests. And that prioritization work, that act, is what makes the self have some kind of power. And it begins with that constraining of its own interests. So by ranking them, it's allowing some to to gain dominance. But then 
that prioritization work allows for, I think, causal power of the self over its world. So that's where the actual causal power, not mere kind of constraining power comes in. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that was too much information. No, I mean, there's, that there's, was just I, enough. Yeah. Well, we can go down. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many roads, different roads that we can go down, but, uh, mm. so, but, but you sort of redefine. Okay. Mm. So, uh, so I'm, I'm like preparing a, a lesson or two in my uh, mm. the course that I offer uh, on attention. Okay. And, you know, reading your book already, you know, I was overwhelmed with concepts of attention, different um, types of attention, top down, bottom up, mm. uh, feature based, visual. And then, you know, I come a- across your book and you define attention at the, at the whole organism level, right? As this yeah. set of interests. And I think, oh man, now I know, you know, it's, it's another way to conceive <laughs> of uh, attention. So, so, you know, how much, how much of uh, your work uh, hinges on um, reconceptualizing attention? And are, mm. are people dissatisfied with the idea that you, you're trying to sort of reconceptualize attention as this collection mm. of interests? Mm. That's a good question. So as you, as you know, because you've looked into attention, even the idea that attention is something is controversial right, in the sciences. Right. <laughs> so since the 80s, you know, Alport, Alan Alport said, like, let's stop using this nonsense term. There's so many things that people are calling attention. I think some of that is true. So one of the a kind of glossy historical view is that one of the results of behaviorism, of course, is that psychology wasn't allowed to talk about consciousness for a long time. <laughs> even even after the cognitive revolution it wasn't popular to talk about consciousness so then attention attention starts yeah or attention yeah so but attention came back with the cognitive revolution and consciousness didn't so i think attention ended up kind of filling in a lot of roles Mm. um and it seemed like attention was kind of behind everything (laughs) and now of course people can talk about consciousness again in sciences and it seems like now people are putting attention a little bit more in its place but i think that the Uh, the reaction against attention has been too strong as well. And that has happened both in the sciences, starting with Alport and in philosophy. So in philosophy too, there are people who claim that there's no such thing as attention, that um, there's no unifying, there's no unifying thing that is attention. Some people have tried to provide a unifying account. I'm one of the people who is trying to do that. So what I see myself as doing is trying to provide an account of what attention is in a unified sense. And I still think that there are many different types of attention. There may be some things we don't get to call attention anymore once we've accepted this unifying count, but it's not supposed to, it's a, it's not supposed to be redefining it in the sense of um, adding another form of attention or uh, or shifting the narrative on attention. It's supposed to be taking what we already believe about attention and giving like a how possible account of that. Hmm. Um, yeah. So instead of, for example, Wayne Wu says that these, his unifying atten- account of attention is that it's necessary for action. So attention is a thing that provides for action. So it's for action. Whereas for me, it's by the subject. So I don't, while Wayne was probably my favorite alternative account, Mm -hmm. I think that it's not necessary to have bodily action, which is the one that I think he's going to have to be stuck with in his account. I don't think that it's necessary that attention is always for that. So I think that it, 
a deeper understanding of attention would be that it's by this subject. And the problem is, of course, Wayne Wu doesn't want to accept the existence of the subject, <laughs> and most people don't. So I think that's one reason why that has to be something that I'm confident in, because it's the key to my account of attention. Yeah. So I, I have in my notes here, you know, one way to think of your account of attention is like attention with a capital A. Uh, and then, mm. you know, because um, from my background, I've studied a lot of like lower level neural mechanisms yeah. that are supposed to account for different types of attention. And I thought, are those all lowercase a types of attention? And this top, the top, your account of attention is like the, the attention related, attention related to the self uh, is that the grandmother of them all or grandfather of them all uh, kinds of attention? Is that the way that you think of it? Or um, I, I, I want to get into the neural mechanisms that you propose um, yeah. under underlying uh, your account of attention here also. Yeah. So I think one way of seeing that I, that I'm trying to do a unifying account is th that the self is related to attention in some way. That's true. That that is the core of my account but I allow for pretty weak version of that. So if the input of the self or the subjects, basically if feedback makes no difference to the prioritization work, the selection work, then there's no attention in my view. So if it's a purely filtering mechanism, mm. then it's not attention. But if that feedback, prefrontal feedback, the input of the self, whatever, there's different levels of discussion here. But if that feedback makes a difference to the resulting prioritization, then attention is involved. So I also have a unifying account of bottom-up and top-down attention. That doesn't mean that they don't have different effects. Um, that is that I see, basically I see the two as input to a common system. So there's, so bottom-up attention, Famously is this, you know, you have this very salient thing in your environment and that's, that grabs your attention. And then the question is, is that, can, we, can that be purely passive? Mm. If it could be purely passive, then it wouldn't count as attention on my, in my view. Mm -hmm. But my idea is that even bottom-up attention is still being weighed against the interests of the subject. And there are, there is some evidence for that. Um, I'm sure you're thinking of, <laughs> thinking of a lot of the different papers out there in yeah. your head about this kind of this controversy but but that's another thing that I'm that I'm arguing is that that attention can actually go pretty far down where it just can't go all the way down to some people want to say anytime there's any neural preference it's attention and I am disputing that so the fact that in the fovea that some of the cells in the fovea have a preference for certain wavelengths and others have a preference for other wavelength that's not attention in my view mm -hmm. So mere filtering won't count, um, but a lot of other things would count. You don't talk about predictive processing or um, like a Bayesian mm. brain account in, in the book, but this like that, what you just said about bottom-up attention being mm. needs to be affected um, or unified with, you know, a top-down attention that somewhat aligns with a predictive processing viewpoint, if that mm. makes sense. I guess that's a question. <laughs> Yeah, it's that's a really good question. I think that when I when I began working on this in graduate school, these ideas, I was aware of the reverse hierarchy stuff, of course. Mm -hmm. I was aware that people were starting to think about that. Predictive processing wasn't yet a thing. Right. 
So I wouldn't well, say was that. Was this back that... in the 80s that you were in graduate school? No, no, the 2000s. So maybe it was a thing, but it wasn't a thing for me, I guess, is what I'm saying. <laughs> it seems like it's really blossomed in the last 10 years. Um, yeah. So I was in graduate school between 2006 and 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have since learned more about it. And I don't think that it conflicts with anything that I, it doesn't conflict with my approach. I'm not. I'm not really drawn to the predictive processing or Bayesian approach. I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's wrong. I don't think that it has, it certainly has tools that are valuable. And, and of course that kind of top down way of thinking about things is, is valuable, but um, yeah, I also don't find it to be fully explanatory. So I just don't, I haven't done the work of mapping my view onto it because I haven't been especially drawn to it. Yeah, I mean, it's not conflicting with your account. It, yeah, I just, it just just struck me that it's complementary potentially, mm. um, but it yeah, it could be. I think where one of the things that's missing from predictive processing approaches is, I mean, they don't have a subject, but they don't like motivation is famously a problem mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. those approaches, and for me, that's key. Like the interests are key. This kind of thing driving you out. Um, we're not just prediction machines. I think mm. we are organisms with interests. <laughs> so kind of at the heart of the theory is where we diverge. And so I'm just not sure how, yeah, how much we're going to be able to, how much I'm going to be able to get out of that view basically. But our, our interests are, um, presumably generated via our needs, right. And mm-hmm. motivations yeah. and, uh, bodily needs in the world and so yeah. that's that's like a bottom-up sort of approach but mm. but your account of attention is it's like it's it, it is a top-down the interests yeah. are having an effect on the bottom-up uh, yeah. processing that's right yeah so the interests themselves you could see as as kind of bottom-up there's different types of bottom i guess yeah there's yeah. um so so one of there's two ways in which the subject could be differentiated from non-subject and one is world versus subject so stimuli versus interests so some things in the brain are going to be categorized as interests, some things as stimuli um but there's also interests that are the subjects and interests that are not the subjects so you might have like genetic genetic predispositions that you that are not aligned closely with you as a subject so anytime there's been competition between those genetic predispositions and some other interest of yours, you've always prioritized, you know, the non-genetic predisposition, then like that's been kind of cast out. And that's not as non-subject <laughs> as the stimuli are non-subject. Um, but it's still, it's still kind of bottom up in a way. So I guess I'm saying that you could see interest as kind of bottom up, but they're not, they're not in not in the same way, not mm-hmm. in the same fashion. So but regardless, interests come from somewhere. What do we mean by top down here? It's the when the collection, when there's reference to the set of interests, when the set has some kind of control over the parts of the set, that's when I'm saying that there's a subject involved. So uh, let's go ahead and talk about consciousness um, before we get into like neural mechanisms of uh, yeah. um, of your account. So when we... I guess the commonplace view or my, the way that, you know, I feel like, I feel like, uh, it's something, there's something it's like to be me. Right. And presumably that's the consciousness, but you separate 
and my identity I equate with that sense of being. I was going to say self, but but my subjective experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but on your account, the self, myself, is separate from my consciousness, mm-hmm. um, and so which um, I'm becoming more comfortable with as I, you know, you know, read more of your work and think about it more mm-hmm. uh, because there's all sorts of things that we do unconsciously, of course, mm-hmm. but, but um, help me be more relaxed about my identity because I think of my identity as my consciousness, my subjective mm-hmm. experience, but you're saying my identity uh, is something completely separate. So can we talk about the difference between consciousness and uh, attention and self? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the, I think one of the key things to see how, how my view is really different from the contemporary thrust about self-unconsciousness is my methodology. So many of the people who want to reject the existence of a self, they seem to think that you have to be limited to phenomenological evidence, evidence from experience. So they say things like, you know, when you do LSD, you don't have an experience of self, so there's no self. Or right. when you meditate, you don't have an experience of self, so there's no self. Um, or it's possible to trick somebody into thinking that they did something, but they didn't. Um, so there's no self. <laughs> but it's always from within experience. And so if you find, if it's possible for you to not have the self in experience, then there must not really be a self. It must be an illusion or um, hallucination or whatever. My methodology is different. I follow this this idea of Owen Flanagan, for example. He calls it the natural method where you see experience as important evidence. It's not something that we should be discarding as scientists. Experience is a source of evidence about what's going on with somebody's mind. But behavior is also important evidence. And neuroscience is also important evidence. Like physiological evidence is also important evidence. And experience does not trump the other two. So when you're trying to figure out what's going on with the mind, you have to triangulate between the three because all three can kind of get it wrong in different ways. And so the subject I see as existing apart from experience, it's a thing in the world, just like a chair or a tree is a thing in the world. I think subjects something in the world. When you say subject, you equate that with self, right? That is there. Yeah, okay. that's right. Yeah. I mean, I usually use subject just to try, because like you say, there are many different ideas of what the self is. I see subject as the heart of all of those. And I see attention as at the heart of the subject. So I do think it's going to come back to the subject, what the self is, but I'm trying to avoid this um, conflation with something like identity, right? which I think is layered on top of the subject. So your history is layered on top of this power you have over your mind. I think you wouldn't have identity if you didn't have the power of your mind, but obviously our identity is more than that power that's coming from years of that power being applied mm. to different scenarios. And then also there's just the way you conceptualize that. So I'm not, I'm not dealing with the conceptualization. I'm not dealing with the history. I'm looking for like, what is at the heart of what it means to be someone <laughs> and at the heart there, I think, is this, this power of attention, this power you have over your own mind to prioritize your interests. And um, what, where I see consciousness, and this is what I'm working on right now, this is what I'm writing up right now, maybe it would be easier, I call the interface view in the book, um, 
now, and I also talk about it as a relation. I find relation might be an easier way of thinking about it. So I see consciousness as not a thing. I think it's been very, it's oh. a very popular view in philosophy to see consciousness as the thing and self as non-existence and, a, and an illusion. And what I'm doing is I'm saying the self is a thing. <laughs> and then consciousness is just the way that the self is related to its world. So it's the relation between the two. It's not a thing in itself that would invoke this philosophical problem. You don't want to have relations be things because then you have to have another thing between that thing and the original. So if you have two things related and mm -hmm. then the relation is a third thing, it calls the third man problem. Then the third thing has its relation to one of the two things. That relation would have to be a thing. And then the relation, you know, so you yeah. kind of get this infinite. Ad infinitum. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So relations are not things. Relations are just relations. They're their own, their own metaphysical status. And I think consciousness should be seen as a relation. But rather that, than a thing. Why am I so uncomfortable with thinking of that, of my subjective experience as a relation instead of like my own, yeah. right? I want it to be yeah. my own. It, it is your own. So because it's a relation between the subject and the world, then, then it's necessarily subjective. It's related to the subject. It doesn't exist without the subject. So it still has all of the qualities of consciousness that we normally, I, I think actually it, this is a helpful way I think bringing back the subject to philosophy is a helpful way of managing those problems of consciousness because we don't really have a good way of inserting subjectivity, I think, without the subject. Mm. So you still get that. Um, I think that one of the reasons that people will be uncomfortable with it who have been in consciousness research for a long time is just because it's become so popular to think about consciousness as a thing. So popular that people say things like, that it, that your experience is a hallucination. So that's like a Neil Seth's view. It's an informed hallucination. I think that there's something in your brain that is consciousness that you're related to that's totally separate from the outside world is so popular that I think it's <laughs> hard to think of it a different way. But I'm basically like trying to remove <laughs> that weird veil that we've that we've created. I don't think that's a popular view outside of academia. I don't think that most people think that they're like um, in contact with some kind of stuff uh, that's in between them and the world mm. that is consciousness. I don't think that's a, a typical view. I think it's something that we've come to after hundreds of years of philosophy and science. Um, for some reason, I think we've reified that relation into being a thing. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned the brain. So um, let's let's go ahead and talk about the mm. brain. And I mean, I know I'm jumping around here, but this is all related, of course. Uh, first of all, did you have this conception of attention and then go searching for a potential neural account of it? Or were you doing all of these things in parallel? And then, you know, maybe just describe what, what you see as the neural uh, basis or mechanism underlying your account of attention. Yeah, so the process question is a good one. I would say. Wait, I have a guess at this. Can I guess first? Yeah, I know that yeah, you're please, a yeah. certified yoga instructor. I my, <laughs> my wife is also. Yeah. Uh, my my guess is that this all began as you were uh, either meditating or <laughs> or in your yoga practice. Is that a, is that a? It is not a good guess. Not a good guess. Come on, really, let's do stereotypical I really cliche. Like that. I really no. I I mean, I love that. I love the idea that 
that I would be like so in touch with my mind. <laughs> well, but, <laughs> somehow get there that way. Yeah, but that, but instead, that meditative kind yeah. of practice, that you know, yeah. contemplative yeah. sort of practice, these thoughts can arise, right? And paying attention to one's yeah. own mind, for instance. Well, I do think that if you look at the history of um, Indian philosophy, which is closely connected to yoga, that you find some of the most interesting work on attention. Hmm. So um, it's been, attention has been largely absent from Western philosophy for the last hundred years or so. And that is not true in Indian philosophy. So it's, it's had a better run there and there's a lot more work there. And some of the ideas that I have and there are at least debates within Indian philosophy about the same issues. So yeah, so it's not it's not a bad guess, but for me it was more that I um, I think that a, an especially personal and historical account is not really what would be the most entertaining to your listeners. But I I guess I came to the view that there must be a self by looking at a lot of research on attention basically. Okay. And I had meetings with some of my advisors. I remember in particular a meeting with Christoph Koch. So Christoph Koch is like this um, pretty prominent neuroscientist who's worked on consciousness. And I remember I was going on a different path with my dissertation. I had a meeting with him. I don't even remember what his critique was exactly, but he just asked a question about a move I was making in my dissertation at that time. And then it suddenly came to me that mm that I was on the wrong path and that wasn't, that I couldn't, that the arguments that I was trying to make about perception weren't going to work because I needed this commitment to the self, basically. I needed there to be a subject. And then I was like, oh, I think that, and I think that there is one. I just had been, I think, trying to work without it, without even thinking about it. And then I suddenly realized that I needed one. And so then I kind of went back to the attention research and, and then that made sense to me that that would unite a lot of that research together. So it was, so, not really so, so you had, very clearly. <laughs> well, there's like before and after. So, so you yeah. were a convert to the idea mm. of a real subject or self and, and before you yeah. could sort of agreed with the contemporary philosophy that there is no self. I did not. I didn't, it's not that I just didn't have a position on it. Okay. Yep. Um, yeah. I didn't have a position on it. I, I would say that on most of my views, I'm a convert. Uh, yeah. And I did, I started out as a philosopher of physics before I turned to philosophy of neuroscience, philosophy of psychology. And I was the kind of person who hated dualism, hated free will, loved Dan Dennett. <laughs> That's my backstory. Okay. So, but, you know, Dan Dennett has a kind of compatibilist picture. Mm -hmm. um, many of the people who have thought a lot about the issues tend to have a kind of in-between view rather than an extreme view. So, from undergraduate to graduate, I went from a kind of more extreme physics-like view where everything's reductive, everything's deterministic at the micro level to starting to realize it, it was a little bit more complicated than that mm. and um, kind of adding in things as I thought I had to. And that's kind of, I guess it, that's another way of putting how I got here. Yeah. Okay. So I, I know this is just a diversion and we're going to get back to it, but back to the, uh, back on track. But so did, so you, um, corrected your dissertation and did you bring it back to Christoph <laughs> and and he said oh this is now all correct is was that uh, as a <laughs> well Chris Christoph wasn't on my committee okay but he but you... was like he was just like an informal advisor 
-hmm. but I did continue. I did continue to talk to him and I think he knows what my full view is. And, and, um, we've had lots of conversations about it. I think, you know, we don't share the exact same views, but we have a lot of, we have a lot of commonalities and a lot of shared perspectives on the brain. Yeah. I think where we, the biggest divergence right now is that he is really into IIT. And, um, mm -hmm. while I think that IIT gets many things right about consciousness, I obviously don't fully agree from what I just said, but I, but I'm actually still exploring exactly, exactly where we diverge because, um, IIT is hard to understand and all of its, all of its implications are hard to understand. Yeah. But don't, don't you think that IIT is, um, measuring selfness more than consciousness, right? That is what right? I think. And yeah. I'm surprised that you know that. <laughs> that I don't know why right. I know that. Yeah. yeah. I do a you're lot of right. research for these things. Yeah, so, apparently. Yeah. yeah. So that's right. So I think that, I think that the integrated information complex, that that would be better understood as the subject mm -hmm. rather than consciousness. Now, one of the graduate students that, that I'm working with, I'm not his main advisor, but I'm on his committee here at UC Merced, Sergio Ponce de Leon, he recently pointed out to me that in a footnote of Tononi's 2004 paper, I think, that he says that the complex is the subject. And so that's thrown me for a loop a little bit. Yeah, I mean, like, it's tough. Because wait, I, what? Yeah. <laughs> but I kind, I kind of get it. I mean, I, I think I... I think I can still see his picture and how it's different from my picture, but I really need to go back mm. and revisit that early work and think about what he meant by that. Cause I was just at a conference in September. We were both Tononi and I were both at Julio, I should say, I guess. Julio and I were both at this conference in September. And I talked with him a little bit and I told him, you know, I'm going to be criticizing your work here. I'm going to be saying that. Um, that He's used to that. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And he, and I said, I'm going to say that consciousness does not emerge. And he was like, I agree. I was oh. like, well, this is awkward oh. <laughs> because I could have sworn you had a bunch of papers saying that consciousness emerged, but he definitely says that, that there is this emergent causal power related to IIT, but he does not think that it's consciousness that emerges. So oh. yeah, it's a complicated view. That's my point is it's like kind of hard to put all the pieces together. But I think he thinks that consciousness is very closely re related to the complex. You've got the qualia space or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where the panpsychism comes in is it's it's kind of like the flip side or something of it. Um, I think what he thinks is that the I'm like, now I'm really I really don't know, but I I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if he still wants to say that that, that complex is a subject and consciousness. It's kind of both. Right. The conflating the two, right. Which, um, right. a lot of your work has been done to keep them separate. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think there is still sunlight between our views, but I have to work a little harder on, on figuring out exactly how, how that all comes together. So that's where, if I were to have a conversation with Christoph today and I haven't for years, I'm guessing that's where we would disagree, mm. but yeah, I believe that he, um, I've been able to convince him of at least one thing <laughs> in the past. So I feel good about that. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how, how much he's been, but for the most part, you know, I learned from my advisors rather than vice versa. Sure. I <laughs> okay. Before we move on. I, so I just had uh, Michael Anderson on um, talking mm. about his book after phrenology and toward the end of the episode, he was relating, cause I was asking him how he, you know, came to these ideas and he which I think is rare, had like a eureka sort of uh, moment that led to him. And so are you saying that yours came about like from this meeting that you had? It, it was, was it kind of a eureka moment or was it a more normal, gradual realization? 
I would say it's both. So I definitely had a Eureka like moment then. It's not like I knew what the full view would be. I had an insight, but it took more time. And I remember having a a similar meeting with my main advisor, Dan Dahlstrom, where I I also realized, okay, this is, um, yeah, I'm going to have to do something here. So So it was kind of a feeling in the back of your head that something wasn't right and you knew. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's what I would say. Yeah. The Christoph meeting was like, okay, this doesn't work. And then <laughs> like, I'm going to, I need something to fix this. Um, there's a conflict here in the dissertation and, or a gap or something. And then later realizing, ah, uh, this is what, this is what makes sense of it all. This is, I need to turn a little bit on this. It didn't end up changing a lot of the language. It just, in my assumptions and my mind, it, it changed a lot. Yeah. But it, did it make everything else kind of come into alignment? Like how all of the different yeah. pieces, but it seems like that that would have yes. occurred, right? So, yeah, so then exactly you just had right. to like yeah. go figure out, just essentially describe in words how they're aligned, right? Yeah. Um, so, yep. okay. and, I, and I'm still kind of doing that. I kind of have a master view of the mind, <laughs> yeah. but it's not like every single piece is worked out. Like I was saying that the line between the subject and the world, I don't know exactly where that is, that boundary. So it's not like I've worked everything out, but it, that piece was really helpful for seeing more of how the view would work out. Yeah. Okay. So the neural mechanism of your account of attention depends on, or um, yeah, leans on oscillations and mm-hmm. uh, the scale-free dynamics of brain activity. Yeah. So maybe you can describe, can you just describe what, what the, those oscillations are and why they're important? Mm-hmm. And then I'll ask you, well, go ahead, go ahead first. And then I'll ask you follow-ups. <laughs> Okay. I don't want to throw like seven questions at you at once, which is uh, I often do. So yeah. Yeah. I'm not good at answering seven questions. I have to write them down when they come in in parts like that. So I don't lose track of them. (laughs) But um, the simple view of what like an oscillation is, is that it's just brain firing at a longer temporal duration or a larger spatial scale. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, neurons, passing an action potential from one to another, that if you zoom in, then you just call that like neural firing. If you zoom out, you add up that neural firing over time and over space, then it might look like an oscillation. It might look like that sometimes there's more of that neural firing at one moment and the next moment there's less of the neural firing and then you get a wave. So you get a peak and a trough. So the oscillations are just neural firing over time. That's not all that they are in my view, because if that's all that they were, then we would be at a mere descriptive account of, mm-hmm. of um, neural firing at a different scale. And I don't think that well, I, that this is another place where I'm not, I can't remember if I said this is one of the places that I have less confidence about, but what I, one of the places I have less confidence about is what exact physiological mechanism would account for these like oscillation, like the fact that there's some modulatory effects from the oscillations over the firing. So that's Mm -hmm. something that a number of neuroscientists have started to assert. Earl Miller, there's a lot of back and forth on Twitter when I used to be on Twitter uh, between Earl Miller and other neuroscientists about this. So it's becoming, um, it's it's a new view that's out there in neuroscience that the the oscillations have modulatory power over neural firing. Mm -hmm. They're responsible for local field potentials. They're responsible for a haptic coupling. That's 
something that I see and I see as helping my view of attention, but what the exact physiological basis of that could be, I'm not sure. And I think a helpful way of seeing this point is I love this example that you can find these videos online of, um, what are those called? Uh, the things that help keep time anyhow. Uh, well, yeah, an oscillator, but, um, in music, they use these things. Metronomes. Like, metronome. Thank you. Oh yeah. The <laughs> There's great videos online. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So they'll have all these metronomes that are like out of time on a table. And if you watch the met- the video over time, then they sync up and they're all going together. Mm-hmm. So the idea that a lot of people have about the brain is that there's something similar going on with this, where their control of the oscillatory activity over the more local neural firing activity is like that, that there's a kind of forcing in line of the local activity into the the global activity. But that only works with metronomes because they're sitting on a table. Right. So the table, the vibrations of the metronomes is being gathered (laughs) in the table and then kind of communicated to the other metronomes. Tiny little nudges over and over that eventually get yeah, them in sync. Yeah. Exactly. If, if there was no table that, that was shared, there would be no syncing up. And so similarly in the brain, if there's no, if there's nothing that can kind of hold the firing apart from the individual firing, then you wouldn't expect there to be anything like that kind of nudging or pushing. And I don't know that there's really been a conversation in neuroscience about that. Mm. If we really think that it has this kind of modulatory capacity, do we think that it's like that? Do we think it's like the table? Do we think there's something else in the brain that we've missed? Um, Something that can kind of hold that signal. People say, oh, it's the electric field, but we don't normally think of electric fields. There is some weird stuff in quantum, (laughs) but we don't normally think of electric fields as like tables like that, like as holding this extra stuff, um, except for at the quantum level. So at the brain level, is that what we want to say? That there's something special about an electric field? Or are we saying that there's some other, something besides like the neural connect? And of course, there's been some great work on all the things besides neural firing that influence uh, brain activity. So maybe the astrocytes are doing it. Maybe it's the love layers. Maybe like one layer is do is, you know, holding the kind of like, <laughs> I don't know, oscillatory activity information yeah. and another layer is and maybe it's something like that. But but that's where I, I think that if that view is going to get off the ground, there's going to have to be something like that. There's going to have to be a table basically in the brain. But so, okay, j- just to lay it out explicitly, the yeah. view of, um, of what attention is in terms of brain activity is the mm-hmm. slow wave oscillations um, that you put in the frontal cortex. Not that that, you know, it yeah. doesn't hinge on that, um, but that is modulating the um, more local, faster oscillatory dynamics and neural firing. And it's these slow, long range oscillations that you put as the seat of an attentional mechanism in the brain. Yeah. So if, so how much of your account depends on that, right? If, if that is not, if it turns out that uh, slow wave oscillations don't have the necessary modulatory properties, Yeah. then do you just go searching for a different mechanism or, um, you know, where is this on your confidence scale, for instance, and how important is it to your account? I guess I would say I'm not sure about it. Um, so I think it's possible to work out 
I think that's like an easy way of seeing causal power hmm. is this kind of tabled parts, <laughs> you know, kind of approach. I think a harder way is is one in which there's there's no such thing at that level. It's descriptive. I think that there would still be room for a causal power account. It's just it's it's a little bit less interesting. Hmm. So it's it's not like it um, it's not like it defeats the view. It just it makes it a little harder, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, I mean, yeah, you talk about the scale-free um, properties of like oscillations in the brain. And one of the things that uh, I just thought of right before we started recording actually was, you know, what about, so, so putting it, putting uh, attention at that alpha band or beta band or whatever it is, like slower, uh, longer yeah. range oscillations, why not put it at a circadian rhythm, right? Or, like what is special about that band of oscillatory brain activity? Mm. Uh, there are other oscillations that are even slower and, you know, like circadian rhythm, right? Affects our entire bodies. And why not uh, put the seat of, of attention there? I know that's a yeah. ridiculous question, but. No, it's not. I mean, I guess there are different ways of answering that, but one way is just that there's this, there's evidence out of Earl Miller's lab actually right. um, that, that that is a signature of top-down attention in monkeys, but but there's no reason to think that that doesn't apply to humans. So looking at the relationship between um, LIP and FEF, for example, in a, in a visual attention paradigm where they contrasted bottom up and top down attention, FEF being the a frontal area and LIP being a parietal area. So they're kind of standing in for bottom up and top down attention, even though they're both relatively high level areas mm -hmm. um, that FEF had this signature of a slower wave and then LIP had the signature of a faster wave. And then I just kind of add that in with all this other evidence on what that means given scale-free dynamics in the brain. Okay, so, so part of the reason is just that there's evidence that that's, that is a signature of attention. And, then, and also that, that makes sense given that there's a lot of evidence that top-down attention is very highly, corresp highly corresponds with lateral prefrontal that top-down attention corresponds with that and that that's kind of far along the trajectory, <laughs> at least for visual, if you think in terms of visual, the um, visual pathways, that things take a long time to get. That's like about as far as you can get mm. <laughs> in the brain, lateral mm. prefrontal. Yeah. And so that that would be on a delay. It makes sense that that, that would be on a longer time scale. So it, it kind of fits with the anatomy as well, but um I think that that lateral prefrontal, the top-down attention is, that that has to be involved for attention to be happening in my view, for the subject to be involved in my view. But the subject is not lateral prefrontal cortex. The subject is supposed to be the collection of interests. And so that's, you can understand that more like whole brain activity. That's so and abstract, so, a, a collection. I, I just know, it's yeah. very abstract, yeah. Yeah, right. And so I don't know exactly how to think of an interest in neural terms. Yeah. That's another thing that would be helpful, I think. <laughs> but I, yeah, I just don't know how to to translate that. So I'm thinking I'm at a different Mars level right now, <laughs> Marian level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not at the implementation level. But, um, but yeah, so you could think of it in terms of like the whole brain activity. So the bottom up signal and the top down signal are both part of that collection. So subject is not just a top down part. The subject uh, would be both. Mm -hmm. So subject I sometimes talk about in terms of the pattern, 
you could think of it as like an interference pattern. So in, I'm saying it, I'm drawing it out like this so you can see that all of the all of the frequencies would matter to the subject if we're talking about their interests. So if, if it's a circadian rhythm, if it's like a, I don't know, a mm-hmm. fluttering eyelash rhythm, I don't know what's like the fastest rhythm, but like there's, you know, lots of different scales that are going to matter to the subject. They all make up the subject. They all make up its set of interests. It's just that that power is coming from the slower ones mm-hmm. over the faster ones. So uh, you're starting a neuroscience lab and you want to decouple oscillations from spiking activity um, mm. because you, you don't have uh, oscillations, at least the kind that we're interested in, uh, without you know patterns of spiking activity. Mm. And then the oscillations themselves are presumably affecting the spiking activity. And so mm. like these, these mutual, like the table affects the oscillator, the metronomes, the metronomes actually affect the table as well. Um, how how do we pull those apart? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. So there was a great um, Louis Pessoa, who is at Maryland, just had a salon. He calls it Neuroscience and Philosophy Salon, mm-hmm. where he hosted Earl Miller, Leslie Kay, some other neuroscientists. And this is exactly what they were disputing, whether it was possible to have a neuroscientific experiment that could tease these things apart. So people are working on it. They're thinking about it it's clearly going to be a really important part of neuroscience going forward. We know that local field potentials are the source of the fMRI signal. They are likely very closely related to EEG. So the ways that we've been measuring the brain seem like they have to do with local field potentials. What are they? So a long time ago, people would just say, oh, they're just a summative you know, activity near the neuron or whatever. But it doesn't, that doesn't look like that's the whole story. And, and I think that we want to know what they are. <laughs> so, they, it's important yeah. for understanding the mind and the brain. And um, it's, it would not be surprising if, if there were these kind of like oscillatory effects, given what we know. The epaptic, um, the fact that two neurons that are severed can, that you can get a signal across that severed, mm-hmm. those severed neurons, the epaptic uh, coupling, that I think is good evidence for field effects. That's one of the, the points that I think the people who are interested in oscillations have, have kind of been pushing. The response that I've seen is, well, it's a small effect. But even a small effect, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, we know attention, There's not. we don't have a lot of power over our minds. We have a little bit of power over our minds. Is that right? Yeah. yeah and then okay. we leverage that with lots of other things. But um, so even a small effect would be, you know, would be a big deal. So I think that we should all be really interested in why, why that's the case, why there is that haptic coupling. What is the LFP? And hopefully the community, when you know, as it becomes obsessed with these things, <laughs> we'll find an answer hmm. as it has to other neuroscientific mysteries in the past. But if I if I don't have oscillations, so I was going to say, if I don't have oscillations, that means I don't have a self. But you'll hmm. correct me and say that uh, the self is not the oscillations. The self is the collection of interests. Um, hmm. But if I don't have oscillations, am I not able to uh, how does that, how does that relate? If my oscillations go away, but my spiking activity is still there, yeah. um, am I missing a self? 
That's a good question. So like I said before, my methodology is I take this like experiential information, the neuroscientific information, the behavioral information. And so what we've been talking about is like the neuroscience, you know, the implementation level, which is important. Which no one cares about these days. So you're in good footing. If <laughs> not, yeah, defining things in abstract ways. It. No one cares yeah. about implement. Yeah. But I mean, experience also matters. So I've been, I've been trying to put forward like what you could take to be a how possible account of a subject. But I do think that evidence of the subject is not limited to evidence from neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So this is what I take to be the most promising place for the subject in the brain. It's going to be, if, if there is nothing like that, if it really is just mere description, oscillations are mere descriptions of phenomena or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then I think it's going to be harder to find something like a subject. I'm not saying that I wouldn't be able to do it, but it would look a little bit more like um, epicycling. <laughs> like I'm yeah. just kind of making things up. Whereas what I take myself to have been doing is kind of gathering evidence from different domains and trying to make sense of that different evidence. And I think our experiential evidence points to a subject. I think that when we look at other beings, we see subjects. So we see, we see when someone did something accidentally or intentionally, we can kind of see that in their behavior. Um, we see it in ourselves experientially. Mm -hmm. And I think there looks like there's brain signature as well. That might make sense of that. So if I lose one, that doesn't mean that it's, that it doesn't make sense anymore, but it, it doesn't help either. <laughs> yeah. I was also thinking about how far down or back the evolutionary tree to ascribe selves, mm -hmm. um, do, do organisms without brains not have selves is is a brain necessary for self? <laughs> Easy questions, right? Yeah, yeah. It, um, so I've been giving a brain-based account of self. Mm -hmm. That is certainly where I have been leaning, but I, I need to work a little bit more on on the on the, those me the mechanisms, like what exactly a self is and like a kind of mechanistic account of what the subject is. I've worked on that a little bit, but it's not a, I don't, wouldn't, it still doesn't feel like a complete account as you've kind of like, what is an interest? How exactly does an interest work? Yeah. Do plants have a set of interests for instance? And, yeah, yeah. Right. So I think that if I could get to something like, and I've worked on this a little bit and I haven't found satisfactory tools for what I want to do, but what I would like to see is something like a network science version of the subject. Uh -huh. And then, then it would be testable. Like can social groups be subjects? Ooh. Can ant colonies be subjects? Right now, I don't feel confident enough to say that that's not possible. Um, certainly you see special kinds of activity in the brain that lend themselves to seeing, okay, there's a possibility here for the kinds of things I would want the subject to do. But I have to be a lot more specific about what exactly that is in order to say whether or not that same thing is happening in the ant colony mm. or in the social group. And I think that would be really valuable. Um, my Maybe. suspicion is that there's minimally some kind of like unity in those things. I don't know if it's the same kind of unity, but um, yeah. So, so subjecthood would potentially be multiply realizable. Possibly. Um, what I think it's, 
one of the things that I'm also not really sure about is whether so consciousness and the subject are closely related consciousness is the way that the subject is related to its world my suspicion is that whatever even if these other things come along with signatures of a subject in certain respects that they're not going to have they're not going to have that self-world boundary so that's Mm -hmm. another thing where i want to get like down to like a mechanistic picture to see why why that wouldn't be the case and i i don't have a full account of that but i'm I'm really drawn to like Evan Thompson's work on autopoiesis, that there is this self, that one of the things that is interesting in biology is this self-defining nature of the cell all the way up to the organism. And so I suspect that that is playing a key role in what is generating the self-world boundary and generating then that relation with the world. And I suspect that wouldn't be there in the ant colony um, or in the social group, but I'm not sure. So, yeah. You have one line in your book that, mm-hmm. um, mentions artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, I don't remember. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I don't have it up, but it was basically, basically you just said that, um, that, that your account of attention as a collection of interests, um, would be feasible, um, to implement in artificial systems. And, mm-hmm. And therefore, the the implication would be that artificial systems, we could design them such that they have selves. Have you thought more about this? And and I'm just kind of wondering what the wider implication is for artificial intelligence or systems Mm -hmm. and subjectness, selfhood. So I think that kind of follows the same trajectory of what I was saying earlier, that if I had this mechanistic, a deeper mechanistic account of a subject, I would be able to Mm -hmm. say that with more confidence. That it could that it could be done artificially as well. I do think from what I've seen in the AI community so far, I don't think they have anything like what I call attention. I right. They, they have the attention yeah. mechanisms are very yeah. loosely, yeah. Yeah. So they would be more like pre-established filtering or something like that. Maybe like a winner-take-all mechanism, mm-hmm. but nothing like this feedback at the level of the set. I had a conversation about that with two people who one's a head of AI research at a major company and the other person is the CEO of his own AI company. You can't drop names? Lunch. No, I don't. Okay. That seems disrespectful. Okay. Okay. <laughs> because it was a casual lunch. We were just chatting, but I was talking with them and um, I didn't know who they were. And so I was like, I think AI needs <laughs> attention nice. like this. Uh-huh. And they were like, well, we're working on that, actually. So oh. that makes me think that it, maybe it's possible. At least people are aware that, that is, that's going to be an important part of artificial intelligence. That would be my guess is that that would be, that would push it forward is to have a mechanism like that. And some people are trying to introduce a mechanism like that from my understanding of this casual lunch. <laughs> I mean, so. just to make it, well, I mean, the other question is, do we want to build in uh, something like that exactly. in artificial systems? Yeah. Um, or or if, if we don't build it in, um, would those systems not be intelligent in the way that we think of intelligence? Sorry, yeah. I'm getting us down a, a road that we no, don't need to No, yeah. Go I mean, we're just, we're just 
shooting the shit. We're just saying what we want. Right. But like, um, but my, what I was saying earlier about my, if I were to force to kind of go down one path or another, like choose, choose a road, Mm -hmm. then I would say that the biology is important for consciousness and that intelligence and consciousness are not the same thing that you can get, I think you can get general intelligence without consciousness. And I think that for that, you're going to need something like attention. That's my, again, my kind of guess view, Mm -hmm. but that consciousness depends on this kind of autopoiesis stuff, this something special about what cells do in organizing themselves, that even if you have attention, don't know that you're going to get consciousness out of it, which is, I mean, that's, for me, that's hopeful because I don't really yeah. want us to be creating a bunch of artificial consciousnesses. But I mean, there are ethical questions and legal questions, all kinds of questions, even about general intelligence. If we're able to create artificial general intelligence, that's there are risks associated with that, but there are extra risks if they're conscious. Mm. Or if they have selves, which is a separate issue, right? Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right, yeah. But so since you something you just said cued me to this that um so in the book and in your works you claim that attention is not necessary for consciousness and consciousness is not necessary for attention but that attention is necessary for conscious perception which yeah can be a little confusing right um yeah can you tease those apart because it's the the thing that's one of the things that is interesting about how um you bring all this together is that you have like these you know attention right which has different tentacles and these tentacles touch on different um, phenomena like consciousness in different ways. Right. So it's necessary for one part, but not the other. Can you tease those apart? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, One of the things that's that I do in the book is I try to say, look, this is what attention does do for the mind. This is what it doesn't do for the mind. So attention is really important to us, but it's not, it's not important for every single thing that we do. Um, I think that's key. You have to have that contrast if you're, if you're not just being like a Freudian saying everything, <laughs> everything is my thing. Everything is water, whatever. Um, so in this case, uh, I see consciousness as the relation between the subject and its world. I see perception as a case in which the subject is gathering information from its world. So it's a specific version of that relation. Sensation I see as sensory mediated relation with the world so it's your you have this relation with your world through your senses and you've got then that sensation that is the kind of psychologist's view of sensation the philosopher has a completely different Mm -hmm. definition of sensation um but the psychologist has long seen it as like the raw input and then perception is kind of the structural structural version of that raw input. So when you take that raw input and you add structure, you get perception as a psychologist's perspective. The philosopher seems to think like sensation is very closely related to consciousness, that it's like the redness of red, like balia basically and sensation are closely oh, related together. It's a right, different, right. different it's way the, of the seeing feelings, things. Right? Yeah, yeah, the feelings, yeah, exactly. And so then you, then it kind of messes things up because you're like, okay, well, if it's raw, then is it <laughs> like, no. I mean, the, I think that it's possible to, to find common ground between them, but I'm, I'm just noting that I'm talking in terms of a psychologist here. I'm talking in terms of this sort of like raw input, um, which I think most of our experiences are a mixture of those things. So most of our experiences, I think have some of that like unmediated relationship. And some structured relationship, 
but whenever you have an instance of conscious perception, that means that there's structure in that relationship somewhere. That means attention is there somewhere also. <laughs> but, so, but just to clarify to you, conscious perception and perception are the same thing? Like perception is yeah. necessarily, okay. And I know that that's like, it's probably a little confusing. Why is she specifying that it's conscious here? And that's just because of the limitations of the evidence that I use that I rely on phenomenological evidence for that mm -hmm. argument. Mm -hmm. So one of the key pieces of that argument is that if you look at our perceptual experiences, that they always have this foreground background structure, that the most there, we know that the thing that's special about perception is that it's structured in some way. And so I kind of go through what are the possible structures that could be the most foundational structures. And I think that foreground background structure is the thing that is never absent, even in balance, even in these really extreme perceptual experiences, you always have that. And so the idea is that that's, that, that that's the thing that's um, that attention provides. And that's the thing that's at the heart of perception. So, I so attention. The question there somewhere. No, that's okay. Yeah. But so, so attention. I mean, so, so we get to meaning also through this, right? So attention yeah. is the is necessary for our conscious perception, but that mm -hmm. is organizing the world into foreground and background, and that yeah. is what provides or creates meaning to us. Is that yep. do I have? Did I say that right? Okay. That's right. Yeah. So the diff the fact that there is a difference making foreground versus background. Any difference making is where you get like Shannon information. So now you've created like a zero and a one or whatever. You need a difference to get Shannon information. But a big, big idea in information theory within philosophy, philosophy of information is that information as we normally mean it is not mere Shannon information. It's Shannon information, difference making plus meaning. And the idea is that what attention's doing is it's making that different. It's like establishing a difference between foreground and background, but according to the interests of the subject. So the meaning is coming from the fact that the subject has those interests. And so it's differentiating them according to what's valuable to the subject. So you get both, you get the difference and the meaning. And so you get full information from that move, I think. So, so oh, that's right. So you were asking like, so why do I say conscious perception? I forgot to bring it back around. Oh. <laughs> it's because my evidence is limited to this evidence from uh, experience. Hmm. So I don't know, maybe unconscious perception doesn't have foreground background structure, who knows, I don't know what to say about that. Um, my suspicion is that this holds for perception in general, but I can't really say that because I'm working from conscious experience. It's my evidence base, yeah. I, I don't really know how to phrase this question, but um, thinking about the account of meaning in that sense. So the interests, um, create the conditions by which we gather meaning from the world does don't we have to have the meaning already if we're searching for that meaning is this a chicken and egg problem i don't think so i think it's we're i think what we're doing is we're applying you're right we already have the meaning but we're just applying it to the world so we're like mm. okay what is the meaning of that tree to me by by applying your meaning, your interests to the tree, that's where you're giving it. I mean, it does, you're not like giving it meaning, but you're, you're connecting it to your meaning. Okay. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we, we talked about attention being necessary for conscious perception, uh, but you mm. use uh, the example of what you call conscious entrainment, I think is the phrase. Yeah. Um, as evidence that 
attention is not necessary for consciousness in general. Right. Um, right. So w- what is conscious entrainment? And I'm wondering if mm. you have um, continued to think about that or other examples. So conscious entrainment is probably the easiest way to understand it would be to connect it with uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's concept of flow experience. Mm-hmm. So in flow, as Csikszentmihalyi has wrote you know, for many years about flow, Flow is a case where you're an expert in something, you've, you've become very skilled in some kind of activity. For me, this case was drawing. Um, that's the example I think I give in the book, but just think of a skill that you have. And the idea is that when you get to a certain level with that skill, a kind of peak version of a skill, you may have experiences where you it comes very easily to you, very naturally to you, and it feels really great. Um, so for sent me high. This was um, connected to kind of positive psychology, like what kinds of things make your life go well and being focused on that. For me, I'm obviously just interested in how the mind works. I don't really care. <laughs> what makes, I mean, I do care what makes your life you don't go care well. How people feel. That's, yeah. Yeah, I, don't care. <laughs> I do, but not, that's not my focus. Um, one of the things that really distinguishes the reason I don't use flow psychology language, one of the reasons is. For Cheek sent me high. He says that flow requires attention and effort, right? So, so it has effort. to be effortful, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's awkward because I'm arguing right. that these are experiences that are effortless and that don't require attention. And so I think that would throw people off if I started out by dis- by describing it in flow psychology terms because I'm not trying to make it about his work. I'm not trying to make it about flow psychology. Mm-hmm. But just so happens that what I'm describing is very closely related. I think where the discrepancy comes about is that Csikszentmihalyi and many other people, I think, conflate focus with attention. So they think anytime you're focused, that you're necessarily attending. And I think that that's not, that's not necessarily the case. I think it's possible to be focused on something as a result of automatic filtering without having to have done any of that prioritization work of attention. So you don't have to apply your interests to the stimuli, I think to be focused on something. So focus is a kind of like a result. It doesn't tell you the process that led to that result. And I think most of the time, yeah, we're focused on things because of our attention process. But in some cases, I think it's possible for us to be focused on things because of automatic processes that don't have anything to do with attention that are the result of automatic filtering kind of stuff. And that's what I think is going on in these highly skilled cases is that we have these very, very highly trained automatic processes. And we've sometimes, I think even strategically, we enter into that automatic state on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and we allow ourselves to, to be engaged with our world in this very fluid way that doesn't require that work of attention, that kind of processing and prioritizing work of attention. But your phenomenological experience, right? So let's go yeah. back to your example. You're yeah. drawing, you're not caring about how anyone else feels. Um, yeah. in the world, and, uh, but, but uh, whether you strategically automated that um, experience of drawing and you, and you kind of realize, right, that you've um, been drawing effortlessly and somewhat mm-hmm. automatically, right? Yeah. Um, how do you know, and, and the argument is that um, attention was not required or, yeah. or being implemented during that. Yeah. How do you, maybe, what if you were just not consciously aware of the mm-hmm, uh, effort mm-hmm. and attention during that process how yeah. how do you know that attention is not working in the background outside of your 
awareness of it? That's an unfair question, mm-hmm. I know. No, 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 it is a fair question. So this goes back to that that methodology that I, the phenomenology is a key mm-hmm. key component, but one of the one of the pieces of evidence from behavioral science that I felt is really helpful is the work on choking. Um, so I'm very familiar with choking, by the way. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. I have, I still like remember shooting free throws in a, in a basketball game oh. and just the awfulness of it. I missed them both. Yeah. Anyway, choking. I have had an experience of choking while giving a talk before where oh. I, <laughs> I like was mid sentence and I was like, how does my mouth form words? And I was like, Oh yeah. my God, what have I done? Not good. Not good. <laughs> Not where you want to be. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think I recovered, but I think I just like, I remember just my mouth just was moving and saying nonsense for like a couple minutes because I was like trying to recover <laughs> like control over that. Yeah. But yeah, so choking, there are lots of accounts of choking. Um you know, there's good evidence for all of the different accounts. So it's actually like a really tricky, it's a really tricky case. But um at least one of the things that I think that points to is that it's possible for prefrontal cortical activity for attention to yourself to disrupt um, certain kinds of behaviors. And I think that makes a lot of sense of these reports that you hear from highly skilled people that, um, I mean, it's a really common trope in, in athletic uh, studies of, of athletes that, that they shouldn't pay too much attention to what they're doing. If they're highly skilled. If they're highly skilled. Yes, that's right. So while they're learning, it's a different story, but once they've gotten to a certain level of of expertise, they're, they're told, don't think about it, just do it, you know? Um, And I think that this is, it's a fairly common phenomenon. A lot of people have felt this, that you, that you can disrupt what you're doing by paying attention to it. You see that in the behavioral evidence, at least according to one story of choking. And I think if you combine those together, it seems like it's not just that there's automaticity processes and there's attention processes. It seems like there's competition between them. And to me, that that makes sense of why people say things like some musicians say that they play with automaticity. I think what that what that means to me is that they recognize that they need to use their, this one type of process some of the time. Um, and so they're going, that's what I mean by strategic automaticity. They're going to, to have like these like chunks of automaticity that they're going to rely on, but they don't want to be automatic the whole time. They want to like insert some kind of like creative flourishes or whatever. So they're kind of playing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're incorporating it. Um, but they're, but they're using that and they're seeing that as like a different mode. So I see that as, as supportive evidence as well, the behavioral evidence, um, as well as these kind of phenomenological reports. So it's possible that attention is there, maybe just like a little bit of attention, maybe a different form of attention. <clears throat> Some philosophers have said, well, maybe there's automatic attention. Maybe that's the best explanation. What the hell this. does that mean? I don't even, I, yeah. I mean, so, many, so much of this, you know, just depends on how you define things, of course, which that's is right. just yeah. a thorny issue, but. That's right. I think it's possible for you to say it's automatic attention. I just, if if that's what you're going to do, I think you're going to want to be able to account for what appears to be competition between automatic attention and non-automatic attention. So if you've done that and you're like, okay, there's these two different kinds of attention, then maybe we are in a similar place, 
but I find it more helpful to have one thing be attention and one thing be authenticity as is consistent with like the history of psychology on this topic, Mm -hmm. just like buy into that way. The words have always been used um, and just make sense of these, um, these things like the fact that focus can come apart from attention. You know, you still, there's still things you have to explain if you're going to cleave on to that historical distinction between attention and automaticity. But I think it, it's easier to explain that than it is to, to say that you have these two forms of attention, one's automatic and one's. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you if attention is a switch, you know, so um, this age old debate in consciousness, right? Is it a mm. switch or a knob like um, mm, gradients yeah. or on or off? And one could ask the same thing about attention. And I'll just throw in there, you know, regarding what you were just talking about, you know, the difference between quote unquote automated attention uh, and full blown attention or whatever, uh, that at least in the brain, right? The oscillations are always going. Yeah. So they, they don't just like turn off, but when you're not attending to something, so you still have the oscillations. So anyway, I'll just throw that in there uh, with the question of whether attention is a knob or a switch. Yeah. So I guess both, unfortunately. So oh no, whether yeah. or not there is attention is going to be like a switch thing. So like, okay, is it filtering or is there some amount of so prefrontal you, feedback? Okay. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to have like that's like a kind difference. So there's just filtering or there's attention. You know, like those are two different things. But then there's going to be degrees of attention within that range or degrees of. I mean, it's not right to call it degrees of attention, but degrees of control or hmm. something like that. So there's going to be a wide range of, there's like a sudden onset stimulus, like right now, a basketball, like, like why is it your head <laughs> or something? Yeah. You don't like have a lot of control over whether you attend <laughs> basketball. That's like, that's a lot of power there. And so you just got like a little, like <laughs> maybe you like a little bit were like, I think I'm just going to direct my attention away from the podcast into the basketball. Maybe there's a little bit of something there um, versus like, someone's having a conversation about the Kardashians nearby and you, 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 had, you had to bring up the Kardashians <laughs> You're right. focused on the podcast. For some reason, that's my favorite, my favorite topic. I don't know why. Okay. All right. it's, it just shows that I'm old. Um, <laughs> you know, my pop culture references uh, are old. Oh, but, maybe that uh, is old. I don't know. Maybe yeah, that is now. Yeah. Oh, my age. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so you're, you know, you're, you're effortfully blocking that out whether you care about them or not, they're, it's something that matters to you, but it's not like the basketball flying at your head. You can, you can use effort to overcome it and like stay with the podcast or stay with the conversation in the cafe or whatever. You don't have to listen to the conversation why, about the why Kardashians. Would you ever, why would you ever block out the Kardashians? Shouldn't we be? <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. So, but if you do, you know, then you've asserted a little more control than over the basketball. So yeah, I think it comes in degrees once you're in attention land, but, mm-hmm. um, but whether or not it's attention, I think you can, you can see that as a switch. All right. Well, Carolyn, I know that, um, you need to get to work soon and I've kept you long enough. Sorry that I was all over the place. This happens all the time, yeah, but I really appreciate Oh, great. Yeah. Thanks for coming on and spending yeah. your time with me. So no, no new book coming out. I, I thought you were working on like mental control book or something. I did just publish a book called attention and mental control it's a shorter book so it's 
it's a different kind of book. It's not, it's not me getting really, really deep with a new topic. Mm -hmm. Many of the themes are the same. I'm basically explaining what mental control is. I'm offering an account of mental control, which would be familiar with readers. Did you write it? Did you write it in a state of conscious entrainment? If everything was old hat to you? I don't remember anything. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I did not write it in a state of con. I wrote it like a regular person, (laughs) but, um, but it didn't take quite as long. It didn't take quite as much. It was definitely using some of the resources I'd already gained from my previous study. Mm. But by the way, I suggest uh, I'll link to this also in the show notes that um, you recently published or edited um, uh, Mm, with a a co-editor, a a book on all the topics of um, lots of different philosophical topics. And uh, I've started reading it and um, I'm really enjoying that as well. So cool. I'm so glad you like it. Yeah. It's, it was a collaboration, a collaboration really of all those 30, you know, more than 30 philosophers and neuroscientists. So yeah, cool. I'm glad. All right. Thanks so much, Carolyn. And um, keep up the good work. Thanks for. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. It was great talking to you. I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI, The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you. Thank you for your support. See you next time.